children are dismissed for children's church this morning. If you're in that area, if you're in that uh, demographic, you can head on out. The rest of us turn to John chapter 4. We've got a lot to talk about. We've got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. Some of you might know that reference. If you don't, that's okay. John chapter 4, we're going to actually work through John chapter 4, and we're going to work all the way down to verse 42. That seems like a lot, but I didn't want to break up the, the unity of this story. It is a familiar story. It is a great story. It is the story of salvation, and it has much to tell us about who Jesus is and why he came. So let's dig right in. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. So they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We all say the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. All right. So that's a lot, right? It's a huge story. You've heard that story many, many times. Let's just dig right in because it is so good. Now, to begin with, now when Jesus, when we look at this, we, we look immediately and we see that in verse three, it says, he left Judea and departed for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he's on his way to Galilee and he has to pass through Samaria. Now, this is very interesting because Jews actually didn't have to pass through Samaria. It was certainly the shortest distance to go to actually get to where Jesus was going. But a lot of Jews, because they hated the Samaritans so much, would actually go all the way around, across the Jordan River, up the other side, and around. It's as if they're going to St. Louis, or maybe East St. Louis, but because they hate Missouri so much that they go north to Nebraska, you know, they cover over Iowa, they go into Illinois, and then they come back around. They spend extra days just not going because they don't want to actually be near or around the Samaritans. Now, this is why. Back in 722 B.C., when the divided kingdom was still happening, you had the northern tribes of Israel against the southern tribes of Judah, but the Assyrians came in in 722 and they took all the people and they exiled them. They took them away. And what they did was the Assyrians replaced the people who were in that area with uh, people from Assyria. And so what happened was the people were beginning to mix in this religion, their, their religion of Assyria, along with the religion of the Jews. And so what you would see is you would have this sort of intermixing. Matter of fact, they were called half-breeds. Those are things that we would never want to say today, but that's what they were known as. These are people who are worshiping a false god. They had taken sort of like, we want a little bit of Yahweh, and we want a little bit of Assyria, and let's syncretize them together, and let's worship them. And so the Jews, who had remained faithful to the Lord, didn't want anything to do with Samaritans. This stemmed back from, you know, this is you're talking about 700, probably 700 and almost 50 years of vitriol that goes with this. I mean, um, centuries, centuries. And so Jesus actually has to go because he has a divine appointment with a woman at a well at noon, a Samaritan woman. And this story is phenomenal in this way. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Nicodemus, Right? And so there's a, there's a juxtaposition that the Apostle John wants us to understand between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And they cannot be further apart from one another. You know, just, on, on one side, you have Nicodemus. He is an important, sophisticated ruler of the Jews. And over here, you have a simple Samaritan woman. One was a Jew and other a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee, and she belonged to no religious party. He was a politician, and she had no status whatsoever. He was a scholar, and she was uneducated. He was highly moral, and she was very immoral. 
He had a name. That's why we call him Nicodemus. We never get her name. We never get her name in Scripture. He came at night to protect his reputation, and she had no reputation, and she came at noon. Nicodemus came seeking Jesus, and the woman was sought out by Jesus. You see the difference there? You see, if Nicodemus is an example, and this is by James Boyce, if Nicodemus is an example of the truth that no one can rise so high as to be above salvation, the woman is the example of the truth that none can sink too low. You see, this woman represents, and this is who she was, I mean, she was, when you think about a Jew, I mean, again, you know, Rabbis could lose their status by talking to women in public. Even their spouses, their wives, or daughters. They could lose their position. Jesus breaks all kinds of rules here. As a matter of fact, I mean, what what many commentators would say is like, yes, she was a real woman, but she represented the absolute worst uh, within that culture. Immoral, uneducated, um, you know, just... She was a Samaritan, a false worshiper. She was the worst of the worst. Now, think about this. Somebody's got to be the worst, right? I mean, in, in this room right now, we got hundreds of people. Somebody here is the worst. <laughs> right? I mean, somebody here is the worst. And I don't know who that is. I have my suspicions. <laughs> it's probably the guy up on the stage right now right? I mean, that's the worst. And Jesus goes to the worst. I mean, that is, I mean, think about what Jesus did. I mean, Jesus crosses over three barriers in in talking with this woman. First, it's a cultural barrier. You see, Jews do not, um, I mean, Again, Jews and Samaritans do not intermix. That's why we call it the Good Samaritan later on in Scripture, because it's such a, you know, they, the Jews cannot even understand that. He breaks down a cultural barrier. He, he also breaks down this gender barrier. A rabbi, again, a rabbi would lose his reputation if he spoke publicly, publicly to any woman, even his own wife or daughter, much less a Samaritan. And he actually breaks a religious barrier when he asks for a drink because Jews did not share utensils with Samaritans. Doing so risked risked separation from fellowship with the worship of God's people by breaking the man-made temple rules. Yet Jesus deliberately said, oh, cultural, I'm going across it. Gender, I'm going across it. Religious, I'm going across it because I have a divine appointment with this woman. Now, this woman... Uh, when we think about what's going on in her life, it is remarkable. Now, this woman, you know, we see that she is actually going out. And, and again, what's beautiful about this picture is that this is a picture of Jesus being weary. You know, he's just traveled a long, long ways. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar in verse 5, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus wearied after he was from his journey. Again, this is a picture of the humanity of Christ. He's wearied. He's overwhelmed. Now, now the disciples, I mean, I don't know, they're going to like Subway to get food, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're outside of this story. So Jesus comes to a well and he sits down about the sixth hour. That means noon. That's high noon. Now, what's significant about it being noon is that there's a woman there. 
And this is the woman at the well. Now, here's what's significant, is that this woman uh, should not be there at noon. All of the women would either gather all of the water that they would need for the day early in the morning, or maybe at dusk, but never at noon. But this woman was ostracized by her culture. This was a woman who had lived loosely, and that was um, being talked about. So, So think about this. When all of the women from this little town of Sikar, would, would go gather water. That was a time of encouragement. That was a time of, you know, uh, you know, talking about families. Maybe a little gossip was going on. All of these things. This is fellowship. This is community in the midst of this little town. And yet this woman wanted to come out at noon because the gossip that was going on around, ta- around town was about her because she had had five husbands and the one that she was with now wasn't her husband. And so she was a loose woman and she did not fit in. And I don't know if you know this or not, but, but women have a tendency to ostracize other women from the group. I see this when I was doing middle school ministry, right? This is what would happen. Like you get a few boys together, you throw a ball at them, they play dodgeball, they do whatever, they play ball, and then everybody gets along. You take three girls you, or three or four girls, you get, get them together, and what they play is they play the game of ostracism. They get together and they're like, hey, which one do we want to exclude today? You see this. And actually, I see it because what happens in middle school, sometimes the, 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 those ladies do not grow up and they do the same thing. You guys know this, right? I mean, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just broken. So this, this woman is broken and, and Jesus comes up to her. Again, it was noon, it's hot, she shouldn't be there, but there was a divine appointment. Again, Jesus had to go. So a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now at this point, she's stunned that Jesus, a Jew, he looks like a Jew, he is a Jew. I can't believe this guy's talking to me. What's he doing at the well at noon? Why is he by himself? Now, wells were significant in the Old Testament. I mean, think about this. The well, I mean, a lot of guys found their wives at wells in the Old Testament. It wasn't a singles group. It was at the well. Moses, you know, I mean, Isaac's, uh, Abraham's servant found Isaac's wife at the well. You know, Jacob finds Rachel at a well. I mean, so all of a sudden you're at the well and you're like, man, what's going on? You know, what, what does this guy want? Why is he speaking to me? He must not be you know, a, a real Jew or a proper Jew because he's doing things that they shouldn't do. Now, he continues, and Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is a uh, an Old Testament phrase, this idea of living water. We see it in Psalm 63, where it says, oh God, I seek you, my soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Or we, or we see it from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Or we see in Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. You, know, you see this, this idea that, that there's this thirst, and there's this thirst that we all have within us, yearning so that we will never be thirsty again. We're all searching for something that's going to satisfy our soul. Now, she's still confused by this because, again, she has this well, and, and there's this Jew speaking to her, and she's a little discombobulated, and she's struggling with this. And, and she says to him, you know, are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she asked the question, and here the answer to that question is quite clearly, yes, I am greater than your father Jacob. Actually, I'm probably the one, whether it was Jesus or an angel or this was a theophany, I wrestled with your father Jacob right around here. We read that today in the Old Testament reading because when we think about Jacob, Jacob was running from God. You know, he was running from his family and it was when Jacob was going to be reunited and he was in in deep fear that his brother Esau was going to destroy him and his family and everything that he owned, everything that he loved. It was right at the point where he had to wrestle with his fear that God wrestled with him and that in the midst of the wrestling, he actually touched his hip, threw it out of socket, changed his name, and he walked with a limp the rest of his life because of his encounter with what I believe would be a pre-incarnate Jesus. You see, when you encounter God, when you encounter God, things change. Your name changes. I, 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 um, I often think, you're like, why the hip? That's a question I have. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask it. Why the hip, Lord? Like, why did you have to touch his hip? I almost wonder if it was because he didn't know how to displace his heart. <laughs> he didn't know how to put his heart out of socket, as it were. So he touched his hip and put it out of socket. And then he changed his name. And he essentially says, walk with me and I will be with you. I'm going to fulfill my covenant promises through you. And again, so Jesus, is Jesus greater than Jacob who gave them this well? Certainly he is greater. So, but in the midst of this, you know, Jesus is, is, is trying to lead this woman. You know, he says um, all of these things, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what Jesus is saying is that if you will believe in me, and he's not quite there yet, uh, but he's got her right on the verge. And so this woman, who her entire life has been defined by immorality and searching for the wrong things, she goes and she goes, Sir, sir, and which is a term of respect here, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. So Jesus has her, right? He's got her right on the edge. Jesus has got her right on the edge of, of accepting what he has to say because she recognizes, okay, there's something different about this guy. Here's the deal. When you encounter Jesus, you begin to realize there's something different about who he is and what he's offering. And what Jesus does is Jesus doesn't welcome her in. <laughs> he doesn't say, you know, I got her. He doesn't say, okay, you know, admit, believe, and confess. The ABCs of the gospel here. He doesn't do that. Jesus actually, you know, gets in her face a little bit. As a matter of fact, I, I, when I read this and I've heard other people say it, you, know, you almost wonder, like, had Jesus been through any evangelism training at this point? Because at this point, if you're in a, a, you know, EE, whether you're in Campus Crusade, and you got somebody right on the edge of their seat, and they're like, yes, give me this. I want this living water so I will never be thirsty again. Fill up my soul. My soul has been longing for this my entire life. Give it to me. I would say, let's pray the sinner's prayer right now. But Jesus doesn't do that. You know, he doesn't do that. Jesus does this. Jesus says to her, and he confronts her. He says, go. Call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, here's what's really, really important about this. Is that what Jesus says is he wants to confront what had given her her identity and what had wounded her and what had scarred her in her entire life. And he says, I want you to go get that. So don't think of it just as her husband, per se. I want you to think about it in this way, because we all have this. What is it that is keeping you or giving you identity or scarring you or wounding you? You know, we think about, um, it may be, um, you see, temporary things, and we get this, temporary things will never satisfy us. And you will keep coming back to the temporary wells of the world that promise that they will give you um, life. It could be the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes. I heard one pastor call it the merry-go-round of normality. The merry-go-round of normality. And here's how he described it. I thought this was brilliant. He goes, we all get on a merry-go-round. And, you know, we go to, uh, like, uh, when we were, you know, in Virginia, Bush Gardens or some other, all the different um, animals that are on the merry-go-round. And there's, like, carts and there's, like, lions and cheetahs and horses and everything else. And what happens is you get on that merry-go-round. And do you actually ever get any place? No. Just spin around. Right? But as a young child, you jump on whatever is available or what you like the most, right? Like, I want to ride the white horse, or I want to ride the really big black horse, or I want to ride the cheetah, or I want to ride this. And what happens is you just go around and around and around. You never get anywhere. You just kind of move from animal to animal to animal, you know, to whatever it is, thinking, and you're just on this merry-go-round around. Now, what Jesus says, he goes, I want, I want you to bring that thing in your life that is scarring you, that you are hiding, and that has given you your identity. It could be the adulterous affair. It could be, um, yeah, it could be your addiction to pornography. It could be your addiction to alcohol. It could be um, a whole host of things that we have hidden in our hearts. It could be that you have something in your past that you don't want anybody else to know about. And that you're worried that if anybody knows this thing in my past, that they will know me and they could never possibly Love me. I mean, it could be something deep and dark that you feel like, I can never reveal this to anyone. That sin or that problem or that person or that relationship has great power in the darkness of your soul. And when we bring it to Jesus, Jesus says, go and get that thing. I want you to go and get that thing which 
has produced wounds and scars in your life and gives you identity. And I want you to bring it to me. And I want you to identify yourself now with my wounds and my scars for you. He's going to change everything for this woman. I don't care how bad you think it is. And and brothers and sisters, we are all hiding something. And Jesus says, go and get that thing and bring it to me. Bring it to me. Because I'm going to die on the cross for you so that you don't have to. I mean, I, I see this in the midst of, you know, great freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from, from guilt and shame. I mean, that's what, you know, the, the first miracle we talked about, the wedding of Cana. Jesus takes away the shame of the bridegroom, right? He takes away the shame. He wants to take away the shame that you feel. You know, I've seen people, I mean, I've, I've seen people who have had, you know, multiple uh, abortions in their life, you know, healed by the power of Christ. But they didn't feel like they could be loved. Or people who've been abused and they feel like their abuse was their fault. I mean, I've seen people like this. They feel like the abuse that they incurred by, by the hands of another was their fault and they are holding on to that and they don't feel like Jesus can do anything with that. And Jesus says, Go get that and bring it to me. Go get that. And then this woman says to Jesus, and this is remarkable, and I see this happening all the time. Uh, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, there's a little speculation here, but I see this all the time. The moment that we actually start dealing with heart issues with somebody in the midst of evangelism, do you know what they begin to do? They begin to deflect. They begin to ask a theological question about what we believe. So rather than actually dealing with the heart, rather than going and getting her husband and bringing him back to Jesus, bringing her deepest scar to Jesus, she goes, "Um, yeah, which mountain am I supposed to worship on? Is it Mount Gerizim or is it Jerusalem? I know that you're a prophet. Should I go over here or should I go over there? And so she wants to get lost in the details. And this is a, I think this is a deflection technique. Now, it could be that she actually feels real, real remorse and that she's saying, well, I'm not really sure where to worship anymore. Do I go make a sacrifice over on Mount Gerizim or do I make a sacrifice in Jerusalem? Which one is it? I actually think that there's a little bit of both right there, um, but I think that she's deflecting. I see this all the time. When you begin to talk about Jesus and the, and the forgiveness and the salvation that we find in Christ, and you begin to talk about somebody's sinfulness, and they begin to feel guilt over their sin, and they don't want to give it away to Jesus, you know what they begin to ask? They begin to ask questions like this. Um, yeah, 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 but what about dinosaurs? What do you guys believe about dinosaurs? Like, hey, why does the church seem to, to hate this particular community within the midst of the world? Or, or what about this? Um, could, could God really make the, the world in six days and rest on seven? I don't really know about that. And so rather than actually dealing with their heart, dealing with their soul and the sin that, is wrapping them, that they've wrapped themselves up in, they will deflect away from what's painful in their lives because for some reason, they don't think that they can be loved. And what Jesus says is, no. If you bring that which is you know, scarred you and wounded you, you know, through 
you know, faith and belief in me, you will become lovely to God the Father through faith in the Son. So Jesus, you know, the woman said to him, Sir, I have perceived that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, in verse 21, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He's basically breaking her down at this point. He goes, you know what? Like, let's not deflect this stuff. Let's talk about you a little bit. Let's talk about you worshiping. Don't worry about Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. He goes, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. You get that? It's not like it's future. It's like it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. Now, in in that idea of spirit and truth, you know, we think about spirit and the truth. I I don't think that that's necessarily the Holy Spirit, although I think that's a part of it. Uh, I think it's the spirit that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we will worship. We're not just doing it to go through, um, going through the motions of worship, right? That with our heart, we're singing and we're joyful and we know that we ourselves are saved by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone. And then when we come in and worship, we are called to worship in spirit with all that we are, okay? So when we come into worship, man, we, we need to get loud in here, okay? I mean, some of you can sing beautifully and some of you can just sing loud. I'm a loud guy, right? But we sing in spirit with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Singing in spirit, but also in truth, the truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus alone is our salvation. That they will come in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, or the anointed one, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, and this is a missile. We can't really translate it right here, okay? It's, it's really translated, you know, the one, uh, I who speak to you am he, but it's really this Greek word, ego eimi, which means the one who spoke to her said, I am, okay? The one who spoke to her said, I am. Now that's a reference to Exodus 3 when Moses um, is revealed, uh, when God reveals his covenant name, Yahweh, to Moses. So when Jesus is saying this, like again, this woman is saying, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Well, he just told her all the things about her own life, right? You've had five husbands. The one you're with isn't now. And I know you're probably looking for a seventh and I'm not him. Or maybe I am him, but not in the way that you think. You see, she had wrapped up her whole identity and existence thinking that a man would give her some sense of happiness and some sense of worth. Now, can some woman please say, no way? That is not the case. A relationship with another human being is not going to be able to define your sense of worth And it's not going to appease this this yearning for these living waters. You see, she had tried five, six men, and it didn't work out. And Jesus comes to her and says, I am. Now, through the first, you know, really from verses maybe um, 7 all the way through 26, what we see is this just brilliant evangelistic encounter with this woman. 
And Jesus reveals to her, I am. When, when the Messiah comes, the one who is called Christ, again, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name. It is, it is um, to denote who he is and what he has done. Jesus, the anointed one, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And again, what Jesus is doing is trying to remove the guilt, but also remove the shame that this woman has to forgive her for her sins. And he says, I am. This is significant. He doesn't reveal himself to Nicodemus in the same way that he reveals himself to the woman at the well. This should be so encouraging for us because there is no point where you can get so low and be so far removed from the grace and mercy and love of God the Father. He says, I am. Now, this is when the... um, the disciples come back, right? So just then the disciples come back. And by the way, if you don't know this, the disciples ruin everything. They just mess it all up, right? The disciples come back. I mean, we just see this, this divine appointment, this amazing encounter that just goes on between the woman at the well. He says, go get that thing that is keeping you from coming you know, and, and having identity. And, and the disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but they go, I love it. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? At least they had enough sense to not say those words, right? So the woman left her water jar. And this is the significant part. So in verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of town and were coming to him. You see, what happens is when, when you enter into a, a, an encounter with Jesus, and all of a sudden this woman encounters Jesus, and all of a sudden, remember, she was coming to the, to the well at noon because she didn't want to be seen by the rest of the women and the rest of the people in this little town. And now she leaves her jar at the well and says, i got to tell somebody. I've got to tell these people who have been judgmental. I've got to tell these these people who don't like me. She goes, it doesn't matter. This this love that is poured into her, this living water, it goes to a place where it must overflow out of her. You see, when, when you understand the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you recognize that you have been forgiven and that you are loved and that you are now a part of the family of God, you can't help but tell others about what you know. And these are people who are judgmental, you know, people. These are maybe people that she had wronged. All of these people in this little town who knew her as, and again, she didn't even have a name. We don't even know her name. And yet she's going around, come see this man. Come see this person named Jesus. Could he be the Christ? And they were like, well, let's go check out this guy. Like, this ought to be funny. Let's go find this guy. Maybe, maybe she has found the seventh guy in her life, right? Let's go figure out who this guy is. And in, in coming, in coming, again, she leads them to Jesus. It's, it's beautiful. Because what we find is, in verse 39, if you jump down, you know, after Jesus has some time with the disciples, because the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, you know, we brought you a sandwich. You, know, you want to eat it? And they're like, no, you guys don't get it. You guys don't get it. 
And again, actually, one sows and another reaps. And he says, I have sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. He goes, look up, see the fields are white for harvest. And what he's saying is, look at all of these Samaritans who are coming to the well right now. And look at what happened. In in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. There was something so genuine about her testimony. There was something that when, when her guilt and her shame are turned into joy and, and the proclamation, the witness of what happens when Jesus enters in, they go, wow, we believe. Something's happened to this woman. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Now that's, that in itself is a beautiful verse there because we see that Samaritans, that salvation is from the Jews first. Jews hate Samaritans. And Jesus is fulfilling the promise, the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 that, the, the, that Abraham would be a blessing to the entire world. He, his line, the people of the Jews, would be a blessing to the entire world because salvation would come from the Jews and then be spread throughout the world. And Jesus is demonstrating that the gospel is going beyond the Jews at this point by staying for two days with the Samaritans. It's a wonderful verse. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now again, when we look at this in its totality, imagine, if you will, for a second, that you showed up at this little town in Samaria, a little town named Sychar, maybe four days after Jesus showed up. And the whole town's a buzz about this guy named Jesus because they believe that he's the savior of the world. And if you're visiting that town, you're like, well, what started it? Just this, this, this immoral woman at the well who still lives in our community. You got to talk to her. And if you went to this woman, again, she believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And here's the thing I want us to get today. This is the part of the gospel that I want us to understand. Brothers and sisters, you need to take the deepest, darkest, sinful part of you and bring it to Jesus. And he will give you streams of living water to replace that which is causing you great thirst and anguish and dryness of soul. And yet we don't think that we will be forgiven. You know, to all who come to Jesus, he will never cast them out. He will never cast you out if you come to Jesus and say, Lord, please help me. Please forgive me. Lord, please save me. Like the woman at the well. Pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we would see the beauty of this story that Jesus went out of his way to have a divine appointment with a woman who was uneducated, unimportant, unsophisticated, who had no status, whose name we never even know, and yet she became a daughter of the Most High King. Her shame was removed. Her guilt was forgiven. She was made righteous through a belief and faith in Jesus. Father, I pray that we would know that. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would take our anxiety, our anger, our addiction, 
all of those things that we would come to you and we would know that they do not define us. Father, what defines a believer is our union with Christ. For if we are in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Father, if we are in Christ, we are sons and daughters of the Most High King. Father, if we are in Christ, we are forgiven and loved, fully known and fully loved. Father, I pray, Lord, that if there are those who do not know Jesus, I pray that they would bend their knee and bow their head and profess like this woman did. Come and see this Jesus. Come and see this man who takes away my shame. Come and see this man who's told me everything that I've ever done. And yet he still offers me eternal water. Father, may we never think that our sins are too great to overwhelm the grace and mercy and love which flows from your throne room of grace. Father, help us to believe. Thank you for stories of witnessing. And Father, I pray, Lord, that with hearts that are full, full of this love and the transforming power of the gospel, that we would be like the woman at the well and that we would go and tell, that we would tell others all about Jesus. Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.